The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a fellow registered dietitian, Ms. Elizabeth Strickland. She is a dietitian who specializes in nutrition therapy for autism spectrum disorders. She is a frequent seminar leader with more than 25 years professional and clinical experience. She has successfully treated thousands of children nationwide. She is based in Canyon Lake, Texas, and she is the author of a terrific book, Eating for Autism, the 10-step nutrition plan to help treat your child's autism, Asperger's, or ADHD. Elizabeth, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Well, I've heard you speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meetings. I've heard you speak through the Missouri Department of Health. You lead terrific seminars. You are extremely well-informed in this particular area. And anymore, it seems like dietitians do have to specialize in order to really be at the top of their game. Tell me, how did you become interested in working with kids and specifically children with autism disorders? Well, it all started, you know, gosh, 35 or more years ago as a dietitian. I've always worked with kids with developmental disabilities, chronic illnesses, and so forth. And just as time went by over the years, I just started noticing more and more of my patients were coming to me diagnosed with autism. And unfortunately, there was not many dietitians out there that was seeing these children. So the kind of word got out, and I started seeing more and more kids coming in. And uh, eventually, about 15 years ago, that almost became 100% of my private practice. was individuals with the diagnosis of autism. So that's kind of how it started. It started off in just pediatrics in general, and then there was just a need. You know, 30 years ago, you never even heard of autism. I very rarely had a patient come into my office diagnosed with autism. But now it's very prevalent, so there's more and more parents out there that's looking for help, can't find a dietitian to help them. So the need was there, and I just kind of filled the gap. Yeah. In preparation for this interview, I went to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, and I looked up some of the autism data and statistics. And currently, and this was just updated in April of 2018, one in 59 children has been identified with autism spectrum disorder, and about one in six children in the U.S. has a developmental disability. And they actually have a chart showing, as you just shared, Back in 2000, and that's not even 20 years ago, it was one in 150 kids, and now we've got one in 59. And, you know, as you write and explain in your book, we don't really have a set standard explanation about why this is happening. You refer to an excellent 
paper that I also downloaded in harm's way, Toxic Threats to Child Development. But I think most professionals recognize that there's some interaction between genetics and our environment. Is that what you would say too? Yeah, I think that definitely has a role. Because when you think about the research in this area, it's fairly new. There was a a law that came about in 2006 called the Combating Autism Act of 2006, and it has been reauthorized in 2011, 2014, but one of its major goals is to take a look at what is going on with the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Why is it increasing like it is? To take a look at some of the current risks that we're aware of, And they're looking at what is the role of environmental exposures and that gene-environment interaction. And they're looking at things such as air pollution, for example, Mm -hmm. ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and pesticides, Mm -hmm. and also the exposure to heavy metals, such as mercury, for example. So the research has been really clear that there is a connection between the environment and the increase in autism. And when as a dietitian, one of the things that I find really interesting is something they're referring to as epigenic, which basically means that genes are controlled by something other than your DNA sequence. And that epigenic change can turn your genes on or off and can actually have an individual more likely to develop autism spectrum disorder. And one of those epigenic modifiers that they're looking at, in addition to stress, in addition to drugs, is nutrition. Nutrition is playing a role. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting in the introduction of your book, you describe how somehow maybe we've taken for granted that food is just so readily available that we don't consider enough the incredibly important role nutrition has to play in protecting our body, our organ systems, our immune system. And in the very beginning of your book, you write, nutrition makes a difference. Absolutely. I don't know what it's going to take to make sure that nutrition services are covered widely and completely. For your services, for example, do you find that insurers cover the cost of you working with a patient? In most cases, no, it does not. When I do see a patient, I provide them with documentation stating that it's medically necessary for this child to receive a medical nutrition assessment by a registered dietitian due to the following reasons. And I list reasons for that specific child. And then I have the parent take that to their physician, have the physician sign it, submit that to their insurance. Some families are successful in getting that reimbursement, but most families are not successful. Well, and I think about the need. I know there's an autism center here in my own community, and I had asked the director about what is the waiting list just to get in to see a doctor, and it was months. So. We know that early intervention leads to more successful outcomes. Certainly, if a child is not feeling well due to problems with food and nutrition intake, we know that makes a tremendous impact in behavior. So making sure these services are available, I think, are absolutely key. It is. And unfortunately, as dietitians working in this area, 
we have a long, I see that we have a very long way to go to really get physicians to acknowledge that there is a connection between autism, nutrition, and the brain, and whether or not this child is going to benefit from all their other therapies, we definitely got to get nutrition as a piece of the treatment plan. And unfortunately, in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, we don't have the support of the physician really pushing to get that child in to see a dietitian, like they do the other therapies the child is receiving. And not just a dietitian, but a dietitian like yourself who has been working with these children who understand or who recognize problems and can say, this is an intervention point. And what I love about your book is that it is written for parents. It's written for educators. It's written for anyone who is in the care or has the opportunity to make an impact in the life of a child who is dealing with either autism or Asperger's or ADHD. Do you want to say anything about the difference between some of these disorders? Well, I've always felt over all the years of working with these children, I know officially they're not under the same umbrella, but when I look at a, a children with attention deficit disorder, children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, kids with dyslexia, kids with learning disabilities, you know, a child with Asperger's, autism. They're different diagnoses, but there's a lot of overlapping issues. I see a lot of the same issues in these children, whether they are diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and they're very high functioning, or they're diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and they're low functioning. I typically use the same interventions and then whatever the diagnosis is, and can see some significant improvement for that Mm -hmm. child. Well, your book is terrific. It's divided into different sections, and the first part, of course, is the plan. And you've got 10 steps. The first, just assuring a healthy diet and what does a healthy diet look like. And then you also get into some specific supplements that might be good for the child. But I wanted to focus, since our time is limited, on an area that I think is probably as exciting to you as it is to me in moving forward in the field of nutrition and health, and that is the whole gut-brain interaction. And I remember when you spoke, it was either at a a seminar that you gave for the Missouri Department of Health or at, at FENCI, our annual conference, you told the story of a little girl that has stayed with me all of these years. Her name was Sarah. She was low-functioning. She was diagnosed with autism. She was nonverbal. And she had these severe behavioral problems, including self-abuse. Correct. And tell me what happened with Sarah. Well, the unfortunate situation with this particular child was that she was considered low-functioning autism because she was nonverbal. She had a lot of self-abuse, head-banging, biting herself. She had severe feeding problems where she just refused to eat. She had major tantrums around mealtime. She had limited her diet down to just a few foods. And one of the ways that they were trying to assist this child was to giving her more medication to control her behavior. And unfortunately, there was not, they were not looking at her holistically. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to think about, you know, when a child has that kind of severe behavior issues going on and they're nonverbal, they have to communicate one way or the other. And one way they communicate to you is through their behavior. 
So you have to start thinking about why is she behaving that way? What is she trying to tell you? And one of the contributing factors to a severe feeding problem and to severe behavior issues is undiagnosed gastrointestinal problems. Because if the child feels bloated, nauseous, their stomach is hurting, they're gassy, they may feel reflux, they may feel stomach acid coming up their esophagus, and it goes right back down and burns their chest, and it just feels like their chest is on fire. If they're not able to verbally tell you that my stomach hurts, my chest hurts after meals, how are they going to tell you? They tell you through their behavior. They'll stop eating. They have severe behavior problems, and that is what we need to pay attention to. That should be a big red flag that something is going on inside of that child, and we need to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so for Sarah, what helped her was after she learned colors, she was able to draw with a crayon, there was a stick figure, and a big red ball that she put in the stomach area to show Correct. that she was having pain. Correct. And that's really heartbreaking when you think about it. Up until that point, she was not able to communicate in a form that anybody could understand until she was able to draw a picture and use that red crayon to indicate where there was pain in her body. And she had been suffering with that GI problem for years and years and years, and it had gone undiagnosed and untreated. Hmm. So long story short, she was diagnosed with GERD, which is a reflux of stomach acid into the esophagus. Right. And the physician stepped in, treated her with some medication, but then you also made some dietary modifications as well. Correct. We had to just do some general dietary modifications, such as frequent small meals, and also taking a look at using things to reflourish the GI tract to where it could function properly and digest foods properly such as using, uh, I wouldn't use digestive enzymes because at that point she was having reflux, but using probiotics, using glutamine to help heal the GI tract. Then also taking a look at does she have any food allergies, does she have any food intolerances, sensitivities that needs to be identified. And unfortunately, since she had went so many years suffering with this being unidentified and untreated, now she has a, the mental connection that food equals pain. Mm -hmm. So even though we identified it, we treat it, we got that under control, she's still not going to eat because she thinks food equals pain. So it's going to take some time of possibly working with a behavior specialist, a child psychologist, and working on gaining her trust again so she can start to learn there is a comfortable relationship between food and how I feel. So it was a long process involved. And all of these services cost a lot of money. They may not be covered by health insurance. I think we as a society need to take a very close look at how we are protecting our children or not. The economic costs associated with children in the United States on the spectrum is anywhere between 11.5 to $60.9 billion. And those were 2011 Mm -hmm. statistics. So 
We've got a lot of work to do. I need to take one break, Elizabeth, and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by registered dietitian Elizabeth Strickland. She is the author of Eating for Autism, the 10-step nutrition plan to help treat your child's autism, Asperger's, or ADHD. After reviewing this book, I recommend that any parent, caregiver, physician, nurse, daycare provider, who has responsibility for children on the spectrum, get a copy of this book and ask your local library to carry it as well. And also, Elizabeth, we want to make sure that everyone has your website where they can go for more information. It's www.asdpuzzle.com. And as you explain in your book, autism spectrum disorders are indeed a puzzle What are the first steps you take in helping to solve these individual puzzles? Well, it always starts off with when I'm working with my families is just to really get to know them as an individual. I never use a cookie-cutter approach. I send mom and dad, and I let them be prepared ahead of time. Now, this is not going to be nor sprint. We're running a marathon, and i got to really get to know your child well, individualize this treatment plan, I send them out a 10-page nutrition questionnaire. I get a really good feel for what's going on with whatever lab test has been done in the past, what the results were, what's going on from a clinical standpoint. I get a good three-day diet record of every single thing that child eats and drinks, what's going on in their environment, what's going on as far as their feeding, whether they're a picky eater or a problem feeder. So I pull together all this information, take a good look at it, and then I talk to mom and dad and spend a good two hours with them really pinpointing their individual child, what type of challenges, nutritional issues that child is having, and then how we're going to address them. How are we going to deal with that child as an individual, with his limitations, with his sensory integration issues, whatever going on with that individual child, how are we going to handle each one of these nutrition problems? You mentioned something interesting. You said that you looked at problem feeders versus picky eaters. And I wondered if you could just give us a quick summary of how those two are differentiated. There's a big difference between the two because there is a big misconception in the autism community. I hear physicians say this, therapists, parents, oh, my child is a picky eater. A picky eater is a typical developing child that goes through a normal developmental stage where they'll decide, you know, I want to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day for the next two weeks. And that's what they do. And then they get tired of it. They don't eat it anymore. And then they'll start eating it again. And they may be a little selective about what they choose to eat, may have a little tantrum, push it away. But eventually, after six to ten exposures to a new food, they will decide to try it like it, and they'll put it into the repertoire. It just takes some basic feeding interventions to get them to expand their diet and to normalize their diet. A problem feeder is totally different. A problem feeder may have a major meltdown, bite himself, head bang, refuse to eat, have a a, a meltdown to the point where they're non-functional for the rest of the day. They tend to really self-limit their diet to no more than five foods, sometimes even less than that. Mm. And they tend to gravitate towards one texture or another, something very crunchy, or they only gravitate towards food that's very soft and it doesn't make any noise or anything within their head when they eat it. Mm. So they just have a lot of different 
ways they handle food. A picky eater is still interested in food and a little curious about it and will look at it and poke at it. A problem feeder has no interest. They want to get away from it as quick as they can. So a problem feeder is not going to respond to typical picky eating recommendations. And that's why I see kids 10 years old and they're still eating two foods. They still have a very limited diet because no one has made a a distinction. Does this child, is he a picky feeder or is he a problem feeder? If he's a problem feeder, we need to get him off on the right track. He needs to have a feeding assessment completed, and we're going to have to deal with why does he have a feeding problem and what can we do in feeding therapy sessions to expand his diet. Well, you have a great section of the book that talks about recognizing when a child is deficient in a nutrient and what kinds of basic supplements might be helpful. You also have a section on allergies. You have also a large section of the book on casein and gluten-free recipes. What is it specifically about casein or milk protein and gluten, which is the protein in wheat, that has specific problems with children on this spectrum? Wow, that's the million-dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> we still really do not know. There's very little research in the, related to a gluten-casein-free diet as far as being beneficial for autism, but there's very little research that refutes it also. There's lack of research in general. Mm-hmm. But there is a little bit of research that's came out in the last few years and has uh, has shown that there is a correlation between a GSCF diet and improving children with autism. However, the children with autism who benefited from the GFCF diet tended to be those that already have gastrointestinal problems or if they have food allergies or food sensitivities. Those are the ones who tend to respond best from a gluten-free, casein-free diet. How prevalent are GI disturbances with a child on the spectrum? It's a huge problem. You know, the research is indicating that possibly 70-80% of children on the spectrum have a undiagnosed, untreated gastrointestinal problem. And these gastrointestinal problems have been an issue going all the way back from infancy. Mm. So it's been a lifelong problem. Right. We hear about this term called leaky gut, where the permeability of the gut lining allows proteins through that can set up a cascade of problems. Correct. Is this still something that's being researched, or you still see it prevalent in the literature? Yes, it's something that's being looked at, except I just really, uh, when I'm talking to family members and other professionals, I just advise them not to say leaky gut. You know, to use the terminology, increased permeability of the gastrointestinal tract. Because uh, when we say leaky gut, they kind of think, oh, you're a quack. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you, you know, and then it kind of takes off into a different direction. So when we talk about the integrity of a child's GI tract with autism, the research is there. It's been there for years. These children's GI tract is very different than a typical developing child. They have a much higher rate of different type of bad bacteria that needs to be treated with an antibiotic, mm-hmm. and they also have lower levels of digestive enzymes to break down carbohydrates. So they definitely have got some issues going on in the gastrointestinal tract, 
and part of that is healing the gut. So it's going to be so the line of the GI tract can do its job more effectively. So we've got to use probiotics, digestive enzymes, use glutamine, work on decreasing the excess amount of white refined carbohydrates that they have a difficult time digesting, limiting the gluten and casein in many of these children because they respond and do so much better with it. But the GI tract is typically one of the major areas that parents are coming to me that they need help in. They need help with normalizing their child's bowels. And I can't imagine the kind of war zones that are created around kitchen tables. I mean, it's hard enough having a child who's normally a picky eater. You know, the challenges presented to a working family in trying to get everyone to eat normally or, you know, quote unquote normally and have a happy mealtime experience. But when you've got a child who has special needs and who's refusing to eat, I can see how parents would become extremely frustrated. They do. They become very frustrated because it's a daily battle. So often they're so focused on, I got to deal with the child's speech delays. I got to deal with their sensory processing disorder. I have to deal with their, their academically, their years behind. They get so focused on these other things that they often put the child's diet on the back burner and they just feed the child whatever they're willing to eat. If they eat gold crackers all day, I will give them gold crackers, right. goldfish crackers, because at least they will eat that. And I can understand. You because bet. the parents do not know what to do. Right. So that's where the dietitian really comes in. They have got to identify that this kid has a feeding problem and help the parent go through that maze of challenges of pulling together a feeding team so they can get feeding therapy initiated and work on that feeding problem and expand the child's diet. Well, and you also bring up the issue of there are so many websites out there and so many people rushing to provide a supplement that may or may not be helpful, in fact, harmful products that cost families a lot of money. Parents are desperate to find anything that will help normalize the situation. And I love that your book has, you know, helpful websites, recommended reading, and a really good plan in going through things that would be helpful and things that might be harmful. Right. I think that's one of the things I've learned over the years is to try to simplify things for families as much as possible. They have so much going on in their life, especially with a child on the spectrum. It's a very complicated disorder to deal with. They're dealing with so many different professionals and specialists and special education teachers, and they need some help, and especially in the world of nutrition, there's so much misinformation out there. You know, they need some kind of a guidance of how they can go through the process of implementing nutrition to where it's not uh, going to make their life more complicated. We want it to be less complicated. And then where they can get some good, reliable resources and not tap into that misinformation that's out there. Elizabeth, we just have one minute left. Is there something that you want to leave our listeners with? I think more than anything is that parents, I'd like to see them be proactive and to really recognize that nutrition does make a difference and it is nutrition therapy is just as important as speech therapy, occupational therapy, art therapy, hippotherapy, swimming with the dolphins, you know, whatever mom and dad are doing to help their child meet their full potential to really be very proactive and pull nutrition into that uh, list of therapies they're receiving. 
Excellent advice. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank my guest, Elizabeth Strickland, registered dietitian. She has decades of work behind her in dealing with children on the autism spectrum, as well as children with ADHD and other behavioral problems. Her book is titled Eating for Autism, the 10-step nutrition plan to help treat your child's autism, Asperger's, or ADHD. The website is www.asdpuzzle.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. And I hope many more patients will become aware of the good work that you're doing to help improve their quality of life. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 